Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher. So you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Street Cop Training Podcast. We host founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino, and today with me, uh, of course, everybody's favorite case law guru, the gentleman who shows up on social media platforms. Uh, standing, what are you about, seven foot three, Zach? Six three, close. Six, six three, the foot, the foot off. The only foot off, yeah. Yeah, uh, this, this tall, handsome son of a bitch who's been reading case law for 17 years, and... I still have to run stuff past him if I'm unsure. Did it just this past weekend, and we could talk about that to start. I was in Minnesota, and there was a case in Minnesota that says police officers on traffic stops cannot even ask. This is from Minnesota only. Cannot even ask passengers in a vehicle for identification without reasonable suspicion, which, if you would agree, it's a moot point because – if you had reasonable suspicion, you could now compel identification. Is that agreed? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the answer is you can't, you just can't ask. So guys were asking me like, is it the NCIC search uh, or the warrant check, quote unquote? And I said, no, no, that's not actually not it. You would, as long as you're not in an investigatory setting where somebody is in this weird way, lawfully detained on somebody else's reasonable suspicion of criminal violation because they're a passenger in a vehicle, they can't be subjected to this request because the Minnesota courts considered an extension of the traffic stop, merely spending any more time collecting information without reasonable suspicion from anybody else would be a violation of the same rules that dictate United States v. Rodriguez 2015, correct? Yeah, and they, and they specifically, it's decided under the Minnesota state constitution. And so for the Fourth Amendment purposes, it would not violate it, but you're correct. Everything you said is correct. And the basis for that is the Minnesota constitution. Not the, the Minnesota fact. Constitution is one of those concerning constitutions, along with the Oregon, Washington, and Massachusetts one. And I'll even toss in Jersey's a little concerning at times. Not terrible. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a handful of them that um, got some significant deviations from the federal standard. Yeah, yeah. Not, but not many. And people tend to think that they are subjected to the same scrutiny as other states are. You know, always try to get to the root cause of or, or read the cases. But I'm glad that I went into cases and we actually found out that it did set precedent in a lot of cases beyond that. I think 31 citing cases quite uh, few, continue yeah. to follow that rule, right? Yes, it's still the rule today. So, you know, if you're in Minnesota, what does this mean? It means that on a traffic stop, in order to get somebody's ID besides the driver who's being stopped for the traffic infraction, you would have to have a reasonable suspicion of a violation of law. Whether it's criminal or motor vehicle, that would put you in a position to compel so the answer is you just can't ask for ID without reasonable suspicion. That's the rule in Minnesota. Right. And guys were asking me, like, what if you see the guy driving, but you know who he is and he's or he's in the passenger seat? Could you run him before you stop the car? And the answer is yes, yeah. you could access NCIC. Right. It wasn't the NCIC access at all that had anything to do with this. I think it was Johnson, I think, was the case, maybe. Or something yeah, it was like Johnson, that. I believe yeah. it was. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was an NCIC check. OK, cool. What are we talking about today, Mr. Miller? 
Hey, so um, I thought we could talk. I know we've talked about this before, but I was um, one of my, one of the recent posts that I did on the Facebook group, which was based on prior posts that I've been reading from other people, was about home entry again, home entry to arrest, and just based upon uh, a fair number of the responses to my post, it seems like there's still a lot of misunderstanding and, and some points that need some clarification. And I'm I'm assuming that the the number of officers that responded with ish things that were not correct in the post are probably indicative of the same percentage of officers nationwide who don't understand these issues. So, um, yeah, we've talked about it before, but there's no reason we can't um, re, re uh, revisit so, it. Revisit it. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. I'm, listen, I'm here for you, bro. When you're falling down, I'm picking you back <laughs> up. I'm whispering in your ear. Don't worry, babe. I'm right here. Um, uh, it just uh, makes me feel good. Makes me feel good. <laughs> so we have entry to arrest. All right. So we got a guy inside of a house that has a warrant. We have the warrant and arrest warrant in hand. Uh, we are outside the house. He's inside the house. Uh, under what circumstances can we go inside and get him? Well, you start at the beginning. Uh, if you're going inside someone's house, you always have to have either consent, a warrant, or an exigent circumstance. Um, so assuming we don't have consent, the, whoever answers the door is not going to let us in. So no consent. And let's just, so we can kind of get to the, the point here, the warrant is for like a property crime. Okay. So it's not an exigent circumstance. If this guy somehow escapes, he's not a, a menace to society. Nobody's going to get hurt. So we're left with warrant. Um, now typically we think search warrant is what we need to get inside a house. And that would be true. However, an arrest warrant will suffice, uh, in some narrow circumstances. So the post that I did involved an uh, officer standing on the porch. I got a warrant for a guy who I believe is in the house. The guy, Someone else opens the front door. Another occupant opens the door. You can see inside the house that there he is. There's the guy that we have the warrant for. He's in plain view. Can I now go inside and arrest him? And a lot of officers would say, well, yeah, he's in plain view, plain view doctrine, go in and get him. Plain, so just because he's in plain view doesn't mean you can go in and get him. You got to have a lawful right to go inside the, the house. The plain view doctrine says I can see something without a warrant if I can get my hands on them without further intruding upon an expectation of privacy, which in this case I have to do. I've got to go inside somebody's house. So first, one thing we make sure everybody understands that walking inside someone's house without their permission is a search. Um, so we would be searching the house by walking inside to go and get our hands on this guy. So it's we need a warrant to do that. The arrest warrant will work if, for example, this is his house, or at least I have a reason to believe he lives here, and a reason to believe I, he's here, and in this case I do because I can see him, then the arrest warrant will let me go inside. So if uh, he's in his house, uh, reason to believe it's, it's his house that he's inside, and reason to believe he's there, I can go in inside. That's Peyton versus New York. Um, so a couple of points on that regarding the, the warrant, right. Peyton, yes, Peyton dealt with a felony warrant, but cases since uh, Peyton, lower court cases have said it doesn't matter if it's a felony or a misdemeanor. The courts are consistent. If you have a warrant, regardless of whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor, that Peyton rule applies. The address on the warrant, this comes up all the time. Well, what if the address that's listed on the arrest warrant doesn't match the house? Can we still go in even though we believe he lives there? Yes. The warrant, the address on the warrant. All that is is part of the description of the arrestee. It's the, you know, if his name is Greg Brady, it's the Greg Brady that's known to live in this house um, as opposed to all of the other Greg Brady's in the world. So it's just put on there as a means to identify the person, not as authority to go inside. Uh, there's tons of cases that have that have held that. I, I just found one the other day, United States versus Lauder, L-A-U-T-E-R from the Second Circuit that says address irrelevant. doesn't matter what the address is. 
Now, if he's in somebody else's house, so this is the third party premises case. So Stegall versus the United States, the arrest warrant doesn't adequately protect the homeowner's interest. So let's say the guy that opens the door is the owner of the house. And we know the guy that's back there with the warrant, he uh, just a bit, he's visiting, he's over there having dinner. The arrest warrant will not allow us to go inside to arrest this guy because that will violate the homeowner's interest in his house. So Stegall versus the United States tells us we need a search warrant to do that. Now, the confusion comes in where, well, what do we do it anyway? It's a third party premises. We push the guy out of the way and we go inside and we make the arrest. Is the arrest illegal? No, the arrest is lawful because I had probable cause to make the arrest. Well, what if I find drugs in the guy's pocket that I arrested with the warrant? Is that admissible? Yeah, it's admissible because search incident to arrest only depends on the validity of the arrest, not the validity of the means you use to get there. Can the guy that I arrested sue me for illegally coming inside the house, successfully sue me? No, because the arrest warrant is all I needed to go inside for his purposes. He has an expectation of privacy in somebody else's house. So a house guest does, yeah, they have an expectation of privacy, but it is a reduced one compared to the guy that actually lives there. So the arrest is not unlawful in any sense for purposes of the arrestee, but what could also happen? The owner of the house, the guy that I just pushed out of the way, he could sue me successfully for entering his house without a search warrant. Um, so therein lies the problem. The arrest warrant will, will, uh, will pr protect me from any claims against the guy I arrested but it won't protect me against claims against the guy whose house I intruded upon. And the same would go if I found evidence in the house that pertained to the guy at the door, it would likely be suppressed. So third party premises, the rule of thumb is you should get a, you need to get a search warrant unless you have an exigent circumstance, like a need to get this guy right now. Or consent. Or consent. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, always get consent. Uh, that's always an option. But the point is, you can't just just because you can see him inside doesn't mean you can automatically walk inside and get him in a third party residence in a third party residence. Uh, correct. Correct. Let me dial it back. I have a question for you on this. Are we required as law enforcement with that arrest warrant to knock and announce typically with what search warrant, you know, what most search warrants uh, dictate you should do unless it's a no knock? What are the rules for patrol officers are the same apply? Do they need to be familiar with that stuff? Yeah, so the knock and announce rule does apply to arrest warrants as well. It's a common law rule that the Supreme Court said is required by the Fourth Amendment. Now, the cases that they talked about this in were all search warrant cases, but the principle is the same. Before you um, barge into somebody's home, kick their door in, force entry into their house, the Fourth Amendment requires you to knock loudly enough so that the people know you're outside, uh, wait a reasonable amount of time. Uh, before you kick the door in and then and then also also announce your presence police search warrant police i have an arrest warrant whatever it is um unless there's an exigency like if knowing that doing so could endanger the officer um, or the people inside or it could lead to the destruction of evidence and you would need reasonable suspicion to believe these things are true or if it's if it would be futile like if i know there's nobody inside this house of course, we wouldn't be entering for an arrest warrant in that case. But if it was a search warrant, I know there's nobody inside the house, then it would be futile to knock on the door and announce and wait. Um, so those are the exceptions. But yes, even in an arrest warrant, you have to knock, announce, and wait. What's a reasonable amount of time? What have the courts ruled? Are there ballpark figures? 10 seconds, 30 seconds? Uh, it depends on what the circumstances for going in. I mean, typically, uh, knock and announce issues come up in search warrant cases involving drugs or other kind of contraband. Um, 
20, 10 to 20 seconds is typically a, a reasonable amount of time without any suspicion that things are being destroyed. It's definitely not a minute. I mean, we're definitely talking seconds. We're not measuring this in minutes, but, you know, 10 to 20 seconds, depending on the the, the layout of the house, the circumstances that of the entry. But yeah. We talk about maybe having independent exigencies to enter without having to do the knock and announce rule. Uh, can we just talk a little about police created exigencies? Sure. Maybe what are actual exigencies compared to the hypothetical exigencies that could be, right? So if a lot of cops were like, well, he could run out the door, he could destroy evidence. So that will give us the ability to go in. But let's go to the, into that part there. Sure. So the recognize some of the recognized exigencies, destruction of evidence, escape, uh, prevent the escape of a dangerous offender, uh, render emergency medical aid, uh, protect from substantial property damage. Those are all probable cause-based exigencies. To, to your point, purely speculating that some evidence could be destroyed, a, a bad guy could get away, that's not sufficient. Those are, that's just pure speculation. In order to say that you have a legally have a, an, an exigent circumstances, you have to have probable cause to believe those things are true. What are the facts that give you a reasonable belief that evidence is about to be destroyed? Like I knock on the door, I say police, and I hear people scurrying around. Uh, I hear toilets flushing. I hear doors slamming inside the house. Those kinds of things could certainly um, give you that probable cause. But just speculating that, well, somebody could destroy evidence is not going to rise to the level of exigent circumstance. What factors to consider, like criminal history, maybe intel? Somebody says yep. to you in the street, hey, Joe's got that arrest warrant. Are you guys going to go get him? He keeps a gun next to the bed. Do we have sure. to call a judge first or we just consider that? Some states, the no-knock provision has to be authorized by a judicial official. Some states, it doesn't. So some states you have to have prior judicial authorization for no-knock entry, and and something things like you just said, he's known to carry firearms or have firearms by the door. He's a, he's his criminal history indicates a propensity to attack the police. Those are things that judges would look at to authorize no-knock entry, and officers would do the same thing if they were doing their determination for themselves. The thing though with no-knock entry, those conditions have to exist at the time that you're entering the house. So I've always it's always kind of troubled me how how can we how can a magistrate or a judge hours or days before we actually execute this warrant say those conditions exist you know so mm -hmm. it's at the time you enter the house do you have a reason to believe you're in, in jeopardy by knocking and announcing evidence could be destroyed but nonetheless some states do require judicial authorization before no knock entry some some don't so we're done with that portion let's move on to the next thing what do you got um, so the only other thing I have is is still on the same topic, but it's um, a lot of states have a statute, probably most states have a statute, something dealing with home entry and arrest that's similar to, I, I just have the Texas one in front of me, but it's uh, it's worded very similar. So we're, we're still talking about the Peyton going inside, making arrest with a warrant. Texas Code of Criminal Procedure 15.225 or 15.25 says in the case of a felony, the officer may break down the door of any house, any house, for the purposes of making an arrest, if he be refused admittance after giving notice of his authority to enter. So it's saying that if I have a warrant and I, uh, for it's for a felony, well, actually it doesn't even require a warrant, but if it's for a felony and I knock on the door and nobody will let me inside, I can kick the door in and go inside and make the arrest. And it says any house. 
So obviously that's contradictory to what some the Peyton and Stegall requirements. Uh, Peyton, well, they both require a warrant. So this implies that this could be a warrantless arrest. So which one trumps which one? State, uh, state statutory law or federal constitutional law? Uh, and typically it's going to be federal constitutional law trumps state statutory law, especially when the constitutional provision involves uh, a liberty interest like the Fourth Amendment. So if you were to kick the door inside in the house of a third party premises to go inside and arrest a non-resident, and you said, well, I was relying on what the statute says, you could still be sued successfully under the Fourth Amendment. So that statute is unconstitutional in certain circumstances. It's not facially unconstitutional because, yeah, in some cases, you can kick the door inside of a house, uh, a door of a house to go inside to arrest someone for a felony offense, and you don't even need a warrant. So that would be like in an exigent circumstance. So I, I would just caution officers that they say that, well, we have this statute. It says we can do it. Why don't we follow that? Well, because constitutional law trumps statutory law. Um, and then officers, some officers will say, well, if it's unconstitutional, why is it still in the, on the books? Well, this, this particular statute is not unconstitutional on its face. It's unconstitutional in certain situations. But even if it was, it's called facially unconstitutional. Uh, if, if, the, if a court like the Supreme Court or the state appellate court up, uh, rules that a statute, uh, a particular statute is unconstitutional, it doesn't just disappear from the code book. It still has to be repealed by the legislature. And that sometimes that takes years, sometimes decades, sometimes just sits on the books. But you would have to know as a police officer that that particular statute has, has been ruled unconstitutional. So this type of statute is, is exists in a lot of states' um, code books. So just be, be mindful of it. It doesn't mean it doesn't give you authority that the Fourth Amendment says you don't have. It's funny when you say that. I often caution a lot of people and just off the topic, and I want to return to this in a second. But a lot of guys and girls in this profession, I'll ask in class just for some banter back and forth. If somebody refused to uh, do this or do that, or maybe it's maybe it's uh, providing a false name, what do you guys consider it here? And a lot of people are like, well, we we just charge them with obstruction. But I have seen in many courts that obstruction have the legislated, uh, you know, the legislation was written uh, requires. They didn't realize they kind of wrote a lot of it very vague or overly broad. And we had that happen here in New Jersey. There's a state called, I'm sorry, there's a case called State v. Camillo 2008, where a gentleman refused to provide his identification to a police officer. He didn't fight him. There was no physical interference. Um, he just would not provide his information to a police officer. So the police officer said, well, if you don't want to do that, I will, I will lock you up and charge you with obstruction administration law. And the court ruled uh, the last paragraph's most important part of Camillo, where they said, we believe and agree that 100% this gentleman not giving this police officer his information clearly obstructed his investigation. But under that law, it requires some kind of physical interference. The last section of that law, and people go by this to this day, it's still taught in 2C New Jersey code. Uh, it says by the last provision on it, you could apply was by any means, by any, any intentional act. And the court said, it's just too broad. I mean, anything could be a intentional act. So that no longer applies. It actually says you can remove that, according to this case law, from the statute. That not be read anymore, even though it might be in your book, that no longer applies. Right. And that happens very frequently with, with statutes. And, and another along these same lines is, you know, charging someone with a crime. Let's go back to the home entry. You have someone who's uh, at the door and they're not the subject of the warrant. Maybe they're the homeowner. 
and they're saying, no, I'm not going to give you consent to enter this house. All you have is, a, is an arrest warrant. You don't have my permission. There's no exigency. Stegall says you got to get a search warrant. I refuse to give you uh, grant you entry. And there's um, it's uncomfortably for me, a lot of officers would say, well, just arrest that person for obstruction of justice or harboring a fugitive or something along those lines. And you simply can't do that. You can't criminalize someone exercising a constitutional right. Stegall versus the United States makes it clear. I need a search warrant to go inside this house. That's that is the only thing that would give me authority in this case to go inside that house is a as a search warrant. So someone denying me consent under those conditions is simply exercising their Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And a state cannot criminalize that. You can't arrest someone for doing that. Now I show back up with a search warrant and they engage in the same conduct, then we can talk about making arrests because now I have the legal authority to go inside that house. Um, so yeah, just refusing entry when they're not obligated to do so legally cannot be criminalized. You can't arrest someone for that. A lot of times, and you and I have experienced this in the past, people get confused between Peyton v. New York, Stiegel versus United States, and hot pursuit or fresh pursuit. Can you just take a minute to kind of explain the differences? And and, and namely, I mean, I'll reveal it up front. Mm-hmm. One's with a warrant, one's without a warrant. But maybe you can explain that a little bit further. Yeah, that, those those that's the easiest distinction or the biggest distinction right there. Peyton, at least the part of Peyton that we're talking about, Peyton is about uh, also deals with warrantless entries inside of a house. But for what we're talking about, yeah, that we're talking about with a warrant, with an arrest warrant, I can go inside a house and make an arrest. Hot pursuit is a warrantless entry and typically it's a warrantless arrest now it can be with a warrant but what hot pursuit is i've gone to effect an arrest somewhere outside of the house Uh, now whether that's a warrantless arrest or not it doesn't matter so i've got probable cause to make an arrest and the guy flees and he runs inside of his his house let's just make it his house for ease of discussion the hot pursuit exception which is a type of exigency would allow me to continue that pursuit inside the person's house Without a warrant, if it's a felony offense for which I'm trying to arrest him for, so the crime, the initial crime was a felony, or if it's a misdemeanor, there has to be some kind of other exigency factor that the officer has to articulate, um, a reasonable belief he might escape, reasonable belief he might access a weapon or destroy evidence. Um, and that's Lang versus California from last year that that said that. So they're very different. Hot pursuit is is typically it's a warrantless entry. Peyton Stegall, those deal with entries with a warrant. That's the distinction. I remember, and this just goes to emphasize the importance of knowing how the law works and what you can and can't do. And, you know, really for us is what you can do. That's that's essentially what we're lacking knowledge of. Uh, can't do is important as well. I agree with that. But how many things in law enforcement go unresolved, unsolved, or people's lives are put in jeopardy or lost because of a second guessing um, where they didn't know what to do because nobody ever told them. I remember after learning this stuff, thinking of a time that I worked at a certain place, I'm going to keep it super vague. And they were trying to find this guy in this warrant. It was like a constant cat and mouse game. They found the guy, he'd run into this house and they wouldn't do anything, you know? And I, I don't remember the the, the details of it. It was his house or not, but these cops would literally go going to get him next time. And this would go on like weekly. They go out to get this guy over and over and over again. And they would literally follow chase this guy till he gets to his door. And then he goes right inside. And then they would just stop and say, we'll do it again next week. Now, knowing what I know, didn't know that then at 21, 22, I probably could have given some advice on 
what was the proper thing to do? What are their options were? Because God forbid that gentleman would have went inside the house. And there were times where these guys were pulling their guns out and pointing at the house in case he opened fire. So there's a lot of things they could have done during that time to, you know, essentially affect that arrest. And that's the importance of knowing case law. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So a lot, it's not just necessarily the lack of knowledge can cause us to, you know, be sued, evidence suppressed, you know, get in trouble administratively. Lack of knowledge also inhibits effective investigation. You know, um, a lot, like a lot of times you, you could have continued the pursuit inside the house, or you could have searched this area without a warrant, or you didn't need a Miranda warning. Um, so yeah, uh, lack of knowledge goes both ways. It can get you in trouble, but can also hinder or or um, inhibit your ability to investigate crime to the full extent of your authority. So either way, it's important. It's critical to know this stuff. Yeah, for a question, no question about it. You know, it's funny. Yesterday, I heard from a guy who was being investigated for an unlawful detention period. And I said, well, who's investigating you? And he said, they have some kind of civilian review board that saw this, thought it was too long. I ended up having a good job. The guy was locked up. He was detained lawfully. Uh, while they investigated the crime. And it went for a reasonable amount of time. They, get, they diligently pursued it. He gave me some of the details on it. So he goes to internal affairs. He goes, well, I said, the funny thing I have to wonder is, one, are they familiar with United States v. Sharp 1985 and how to apply that? And are they a judge? Are they a trained, uh, you know, this is what I'm saying with these internal affairs divisions. How would you, as an IA, be required or have the ability to give your personal opinion by unsupported facts on whether or not you thought it was too long. Do you sign something completely wrong with that? So most agents, I'm imagining, well, this is, it's obviously since it's an, it's an internal affairs investigation, it's an administrative investigation, not a criminal investigation, because we would not have our IA Bureau doing criminal investigations. They're investigating whether the officer violated their policy. And I'm going to just assume that their policy is that we will follow the Fourth Amendment standards, you know. So um, now some policies could be a little bit more restrictive. But so at the end of the day, yes, it does involve an IA investigator and then ultimately the chief or the sheriff, whoever is going to sign off on this, to interpret what they think is a reasonable search or seizure, reasonable detention period in this case. Now, if our policy is we'll follow what the Fourth Amendment says, then I would think the they owe it to the officer being investigated for them to have a very solid understanding of what the Fourth Amendment actually says before we impose discipline on this this particular officer. But an officer could be he could be disciplined by his agency for conducting a legally reasonable detention, but his agency, for whatever reason, feels like it's unreasonable. So he he could certainly be disciplined. And this is where grievance procedures and and union protections and things like that uh, could come into play to your benefit. But uh, if the standard is the same, criminal investigation versus administrative, then we should be uh, have a solid working knowledge of it. But yeah. Right. I mean, wouldn't you think that would be the litmus paper test to know whether or not something was actually violated? Yeah. If our policy is we won't violate the law and that's that's all the policy is, it's no more restrictive than, yeah, we need to apply what the law is. So the guy doing I'm the investigation has got to have a good knowledge of it. Uh, many occasions I've been approached by internal affairs divisions. Oh, let me first say this. I've been approached by internal affairs divisions who needed help. They knew that they that the guy wasn't wrong. They mm -hmm. just needed help explaining it. Glad to do it. Right. That, I'm glad you called me. I'm glad you reached out. And, and you know, 
they knew they were frivolous stuff. This was real light shit. They just want to do a good job on behalf of the cop. They weren't trying to get him off. They knew he did something right. And maybe he's out of the wheelhouse of knowledge of like, was this okay? Was this not? I think it is. I've heard you say it is. But then on the other hand of it, I've actually had a multiple occasions, internal affairs divisions at my training. And I've had it more than once. Somebody walk up to me on the break and go, you know, uh, what I just heard in the last session that we did, I'm able to now go back and exonerate this officer, clear him. As he was looking at, and I go, well, what was he looking at? Well, he was looking at a five-day rip. For what? Uh, we thought that he did something wrong, but according to the case law you provided, he did something right. And I say the same thing to these guys every time. What would have happened if you weren't here? Where is our duty and responsibility, especially to a fellow coworker, to interpret what's appropriate under the Fourth Amendment or your state's constitution before we start laying the hammer down? It is wild. And you could you could understand the frustration of the men and women in law enforcement who are being held to a standard that nobody knows the fucking standard is. What is the standard? Yeah. It's no different than how do you get promoted here? Nobody knows. Yesterday was this game. Now, tomorrow, it's this game. Now you got a new chief. Now it's fair. Oh, he left. Now it's unfair again, right? Like, so how do we, how do you put, and that's the most frustrating part about this is like, just make it fucking fair. Make right. some rules to the game, make it fair. Here's the rules, follow them. You'll be okay, or you'll get promoted or whatever you want. It's wild, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. When when you're talking about taking adverse employment action against someone, you know, demotions, suspensions, firings, those kinds of things, um, in most states, you either have some kind of collectively bargained grievance process or other states have um, law enforcement bill of rights in their statutes or whatever that have a due process provision built into them so that there are grievance procedures. Um, if I'm if I'm about to have an adverse employment action taken against me, I have a right, uh, a due process right to have my claim heard um, by some some other party besides the guy making the decision. So um, hopefully somewhere in the chain, someone's going to get it right. It would be nice if we got it right at the beginning part so we don't have to spend the time and effort and money uh, doing these reviews and things like that. And that's where just training, just going to training, uh, good quality training on on legal training and keeping up to to, to knowledge, up to date on these things is is important when you hold these positions in agencies. I, I find it very interesting that these police agencies will say, well, we don't have a training budget. You know, you're not going to that class. You're not going to this class. You're not going to that class. We've talked about this in the past and I want to reiterate this. You know, really, if you really think about that, how ridiculous that statement is, if you have a police officer that goes out and takes an action and ends up being liable, and again, the buck's being passed back to the agency, you're willing to forfeit a $299 class, $150 class, $100, to run the risk of finding yourself in court, and I'm guessing on some kind of civil uh, you know, rights violation starting at 70000 bucks, going up to millions and millions of dollars right. because you don't have a good training budget. You guys can't figure it out. And then the town's on the hook for what, four or five million bucks, where this probably could have been avoided with some investment into your people. I find it to be the most hypocritical fucking thing in the world that they won't turn to people who can actually prevent this. And, and Zach, let's talk about something real quick. When you show up to a civil litigation hearing on a, on, on, on a, on a town's behalf, let's call you the attorney, mm -hmm. would you consider that the number that's being awarded at the end of this 
the, the amount of training the person received is going to be a big variable in how much the 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 defense or the plaintiff is going to be entitled to receive. Yeah, if you're talking about a civil rights claim, which is how most of these things get into court, is failure to train is a basis for bringing a municipality into the lawsuit. So an officer gets sued for using excessive force. In order for the agency to be held liable, they have to have some kind of actual causal connection to that use of that that unconstitutional use of force. One way that a defense, excuse me, a plaintiff can show that is by showing this off this agency fail failed to train this officer on how to use force lawfully. Um, the standard is deliberate indifference. So this, the plaintiff would have to show, show this agency was deliberately indifferent to the requirements of training a police officer on use of force so deliberately indifferent that they should be held liable failing to train someone or excuse me not having money to do training is not a defense to failing to train those officers the uh, the courts effectively say if you can't afford to train your officers then you shouldn't have officers you shouldn't be in a, you shouldn't be in a business business of policing if you can't provide them the adequate training that they need so yeah the damage award that the plaintiff could win in a situation like that is going to be exponentially higher than what it would have cost in the first place to train the officer properly. Even just showing that, look, we 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 go above and beyond with the training that's afforded to our officers. Uh, we've even used in-house resources. These are some things we've documented that we've done. We're not just checking boxes here, folks. When you say that to a jury and they're awarding something, you know, you're going to at the let's say it's going to be a one million dollar lawsuit, and that's what they're going to settle at. Uh, it might have been a $2 million lawsuit had they not spent that time. So it's just, it's very interesting to me as I sit here uh, and watch the, the just basically the show of people. I, I just like literally have popcorn. I just continue to, that makes no sense, right? Like good thing that we're doing it this way. Good thing that you're leaving out yourself open for exposure. So we start to implement some common sense into, and I'm not saying that because I am on the receiving end of your training budget, which I am. The reason I went into training is I said, okay, there's one way to really fix everything, and that is to train people appropriately. If you really start to unpack it, when you look at videos of law enforcement officers looking like crazy and like they don't notice or they're misbehaving or their tactics are bad and unfortunately people get injured or lose their lives, I look at it every single time and say, first of all, I was never trained properly, but two, this is all just one big, again, with those moments in time where you know, it was something that nobody could predict. There was no training in the world that could have stopped this from occurring, just is what it is. But when you look at it, say, this is just a complete lack of training. Somebody knows how to handle this. Yeah. It was available. They just didn't go. Yeah. A lot of our issues can be traced back causally to, you know, failure, lack of training, lack of adequate training, um, sufficient training. Yeah, absolutely. What's crazy is like now they'll put police officers in prison, right? I mean, just these liberal cities, these Democratic ran cities, they will bam, just Charge this guy. I mean, we did it in Atlanta, right? They charged up the guy, shot and killed. Then he's released. He's, I just talked to somebody there and said, he's, you know, he's back on the job. You know, he was released from jail and promptly reinstated immediately mm-hmm. for them to try to reduce their exposure. It just amazes me that police officers real have to realize that you're the ones who they're going to hold accountable. Why are their administrations not being, why are the administrations not being charged criminally, right? For a failure. So why are we not saying to a, to a chief? Hey, uh, you didn't train. You you actually have liability here. You could be charged criminally. If he's getting charged, you're getting charged too. That would probably change the tune a little bit, yeah, right? That would definitely uh, light some fires. I guarantee that. 
I guarantee. Yeah, what did they do? They go, ah, we, well, we tried. We sent them to an academy. Well, yeah. Chief, you know the academy's bet. Well, it's what the state wants. That's so what we're doing. All right. So, like, right. hey, let's start having some liability, not to the direct supervisor. I'm talking about the head command staff. Right. If your officer does something that was was would occurred because of a lack of a training, and it, we can show that you are the person. You know, Zach, we had a training budget by old agency. Um, I never forget looking at the training budget, and it was like forty grand. And I'm like, I haven't seen somebody in patrol go to training in years. Right? Who uses all this money? And you start opening the records. This captain's going here. This captain's going there. This lieutenant's going here. Everybody specialized divisions. They're getting training. You know, it's it's like it's 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 the the misappropriation of everything and the politics that go along with it. It is just wild if people actually knew what goes on with these places. It's just insane. Right. And these these are the people that interact with citizens every single day and they get the least least amount of it, training. Yeah. It is wild, dude. I mean, I remember going to training one time and like there was training and I showed up in the detective bureau is there and I'm like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm going to training. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, we got sent. I'm like, I know you got sent, but I need to train too. Anyway. Let me not rant on and rave. Great session today. We got a lot of good stuff covered. And um, yeah. uh, it was always a pleasure seeing you. We'll get uh, this going more uh, in the future. And um, great things to come, Mr. Miller. Good, to do, Glad to do it. Glad to do it. And if you were in a state where Zach is teaching, you'd be surprised. He pretty much is the Carmen San Diego of case law. <laughs> he is all over the country and taking on more and more states. We have a lot of stuff planned for the future. And you can check out Zach's training courses at streetcop.com. He teaches case law per state. So does Mike Brazil. So does Ken Rice. So does myself. I'm missing any other case law instructors right now. Dan Foster. And Dan Foster teaches Pennsylvania. My apologies, Daniel. I love you to death. You know I do. But without further ado, thank you all for continued support here at Street Cop Training. Hey, guys, don't forget to check out the Street Cop Training Conference 2023, April 23rd through the 28th, Nashville, Tennessee, the Gaylord at Opry. What a center. What a place. We have amazing speakers, amazing training, five of the most impactful days of your career. Check it out at streetcop.com. You do not want to miss out. There is a room code available for a discounted room. Sign up now at streetcop.com.